Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrewer for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm here with Nick Hare and Peter Cockhill of Aleph Insights. And also with us this week, we have our special guest, Neil Bacon, who is a health outcome specialist. And this week, we're discussing health data. And due to the lockdown, unusually, we are recording this remotely. Uh, Nick, could you um, tell us why we're talking about health data and, and perhaps also introduce us to our special guest, Neil? Sure. Um, so, uh, well, th- weirdly, this is not this is not what you'd expect. You'd expect us to have Neil on because uh, of the uh, global global COVID-19 pandemic. But actually, we kind of we, we, we booked him before that became a uh-huh. thing. Okay. Um, so usually with the with the guests I, I normally say i've known them for 10 years with neil i've only uh, we were kind of introduced by a mutual friend of ours um trish and panch who who is the chief medical office officer for a uh, a u.s healthcare um technology company called wellframe mm-hmm. um and neil and i met up and it was clear that we both had interests obviously neil comes from a uh, a health background and i and i come from a sort of defense and security background but i mean actually you you see the same problems you see the same kind of issues um you know there there are lots of experts but not necessarily enough data to um you know to cover all of the uncertainties that we have and uh, neil has done a lot of uh you know actual practical work in in different sort of aspects of of healthcare and did you know creating healthcare information sharing health information uh you know as importantly and um and yeah so i thought well that that would be really interesting to kind of you know have someone who really knows about about the sort of healthcare uh, data mm-hmm. side uh so we can think about the parallels now and then and then yeah. what happened of yeah. course is a global pandemic mm. and um how lucky, so, how fortu- how fortuitous exactly and so so i think you know it would be interesting certainly to start by asking well i mean there's enough about about uh covid-19 but it would be interesting to start to just talk about the data side of it i think to begin with okay sounds good um so neil before we go on just tell us a little bit more about yourself go a bit more in depth if you could thank you thank you fraser uh thank you nick my background is a clinician originally i was a nephrologist uh, a kidney doctor for all those non-greek scholars nephron the filter uh, i was a kidney doctor trained in oxford uh, and Nottingham. Then I was over in Harvard. This was 93, 94. So um, mm-hmm. time flies. So just when the internet was happening, literally. Mm. And whilst busily um, doing clinical medicine and loving it in the States um, and back in the UK, I thought <clears throat> this internet thing's going to change everything. Uh, and apologies for the cliche, but it turned out to be true. Um, and I resigned a molecular biology PhD that I was doing actually in the lab of Peter Ratcliffe, and Peter's the chap who just won the Nobel Prize for Medicine last November. Um, so suddenly from, I was in a lab, actually I now can tell everyone I was in a Nobel Prize winning lab, and the, the one paper I produced out of my aborted PhD is one that is actually quoted uh, by Professor Ratcliffe uh, mm-hmm. uh, as uh, in, in his work. So uh, that's as close as I get to a Nobel Prize, and despite that lucky uh, brush with uh, life of research I escaped because I set up a business called Doctors Net UK okay and Doctors Net UK was or is the very first uh, online community for physicians and the focus of it was knowledge sharing uh, learning mm-hmm. first people to do globally the first people to do uh, online learning to online collaboration 
Um, mm -hmm. Not that being first in this instance necessarily means the best. Anyway, I did that for 10 years whilst carrying on doing some clinical work. Had a couple of years doing consultancy after that, digital health. Again, very, very new field. That took me all over the place. Um, best piece of work I did there was probably with uh, Don Berwick in the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, helping set up what is, was the Open School, an international online learning platform. And then um, I set up a business called I Want Great Care. Um, mm -hmm. And that was essentially the TripAdvisor of Health, enabling okay. patients to rate and review their healthcare, their medicines, their doctors, but then to use the knowledge and the insights uh, and the information from that to make predictions, to improve safety, to uh, improve pharmacovigilance. So I did that for a little while. Uh, so again, very much into data and outcomes. Um, and then briefly, and then I'll, uh, there's too much about me, for the last uh, 18 months or so, I ran an organization, which was the International Consortium for Healthcare Outcomes, which is a global mm -hmm. organization coming out of uh, Michael Porter's work at Harvard, uh, helping establish global standards for measuring healthcare outcomes. So um, a little bit of from a clinical background, but it's all been healthcare and, and all data. So um, interestingly, um, in, in some ways, uh, very different from uh, other guests that we've had on here. But actually, in all the important ways, exactly like all the, the guests that we have on here, um, just sort of just sound highly accomplished and, and quite niche as well. Um, but also um, just uh, very appropriate for this moment. Um, so, Nick, I'm going to hand, hand this over to you. Um, go ahead. I'll, I'll, ask Neil something. Well, I think the first thing probably is to ask uh, for sort of non-specialists out there what exactly we mean by health outcomes and why it's so important to measure them. Um what they what they what they make better you know what measuring it makes better it's interesting that for many people who say are, are non call themselves non-experts they don't think about it but anybody who anticipates at some point being a patient or someone they care for being a patient should pretty much be obsessed with health outcomes in the uk perhaps we have almost dare i say a complacency well we have a, a quote to quote the prime minister our nhs not just the nhs anymore it's our nhs uh, and somehow people think, well, that's everything. That's that's all right because it's it must be good because it's our NHS. Well, as a case in point, um, what are the outcomes from the NHS? If you are have a heart attack, or if you have cancer, if your child needs some important uh, treatment, what are the outcomes? So, healthcare outcomes are attempts to answer that question: How well do we treat something? What was the result? What's the long-term result? How well do we compare with other organizations? And those comparisons may be within a country. Should I be treated in Birmingham, Cambridge, London, or international comparisons? So without healthcare outcomes, uh, and again, maybe pertinent to the times that we live in, uh, without healthcare outcomes, we are running in the dark. We are blind to what healthcare we're getting. And of course, if we don't know the healthcare outcomes that systems are delivering we don't know whether they need improvement where to improve them or how to improve them so i mean i i guess most people probably assume and the only reason i think this is probably the case is that i i probably assume it but also when i directly when i've worked with with customers for for analysis um you know they often just assume that data exists that it's out there that someone's collecting it you know um can you tell me what what's the, the average uh, increase in annual cost of you know grass cutting services or something and you think well um you know actually no one knows we just don't no one collects that right the, the data does not collect itself what 
what do you, I was wondering if you sort of what what would people be most surprised that we don't really have an insight into? I mean, is it the case that actually, you know, when we recommend um, uh, a particular treatment, particular course of you know drugs or a particular surgical intervention or something, um, is it the case that actually most of the time we've got a really good idea about what the kind of long term impacts are, um, it, it, or actually is is a lot of it just sort of common practice and intuition? I'm not sure it's even even the latter. It's definitely not the former, Nick. Um, and it's very easy to do this. Next time you or or, or someone listening to this sees a, a doctor, a physiotherapist, a dentist, a surgeon, just ask them, what will my outcome be if you treat me? How do your treatments compare with other doctors, stroke surgeons in this practice? And how good are you compared to the rest of the country? Um, be prepared for an embarrassing silence. Maybe don't ask it if the person has a drill in their hand and is about to attack your teeth. Uh, there is a dearth of understanding and insight. As is often the case, there's a lot of data out there, but it's not collected, it's not interpreted, it's not understood. Um, so small pockets, small, small pockets, the cardiothoracic surgeons after fight in the UK after fighting for literally decades to try and hide it and and argued not to do it now collect all their outcomes in a standard comparative way and of course they've now um, become the zealots for this wondering why no one else does it because it's improved standards it's improved quality it's improved it it helps them make the case for proper investment Um, today in the news uh, there's coverage although it's obviously buried slightly by the virus uh, the pandemic of media coverage of the pandemic, but <laughs> that actually um, George's in South London, their cardiothoracic uh, department was riven with problems that probably led to 40 or 50 excess deaths. So there's mm. a real, real where outcomes are important if, without knowing that. Now that's the negative too often. And I, I'm guilty of it as well. Talk of outcomes tend to turn to the negative. There's so much potential in understanding outcomes, which are good to increase confidence, to help people do the, th- the right thing, to help them get the right treatment. But in answer to your, another way of answering your question, in the UK, about, uh, I can't remember how many, hundreds of millions, let's say at least hundreds of millions is spent treating asthma in this country, both in primary care and secondary care. No one has any outcome data for the, how those hundreds of millions are spent, or the impact of them, where it works and where it doesn't work. And unfortunately, that's the same for the vast majority of healthcare, not just in the UK, um, but overseas. We know there's huge variation. We know there's huge waste. We know there's some great centres. Pretty much, uh, we don't know where they are. And, and and why is that? Is it going back to the example that you gave, Neil? That I, I remember when I was an economist, and we used to make predictions all the time. And, and more than most economists, my uh, predictions were pretty much wrong. Um, but something that we never did as a department, really, was to go back and check our predictions and report on those. And and the reason why was because we all knew that they would be wrong. Um, now, is it is it the same case in, in, in health outcomes? Is this why um, clinicians are reluctant to do this, or departments are reluctant to do this? Because um it's it's better off if we just don't talk about that stuff especially given the amount of money that's going into it i think that's a a really good point fraser and i think uh maybe socially in the uk you know it's you can't criticize the nhs you know it's our nhs it's a religion it's heresy to say actually the nhs kills lots of people it shouldn't that's a fact Mm. that's a fact Mm. because all healthcare systems do that the difference Mm. is the really good ones work really diligently and hard to work out where they're where they could be better um there isn't a successful commercial organization on the planet that couldn't 
that wouldn't continually seek to improve to understand everything i mean taking it away from the nhs uh men much of which much of which is good we just don't know which bit of the nhs is really good um, we don't we generally know the bits that are really bad because people start being found dead in the bed and drinking out of vases and their children die and then it becomes a crisis but unfortunately uh it has to be a crisis and that the hundreds of thousands of people who get suboptimal care who's um we don't know about that or we don't measure that it's another example and as a contrast in the states for example as you know huge amounts of care are paid for by employers employers pay health insurance and it's a huge amount and an ever-increasing amount of the money that their actual cost of running an organization if you're um walmart apple uh, amazon it's a big chunk of your costs mm. these organizations know exactly to the to the cent how much things cost you know starbucks will know exactly how much they pay for paper cups stirrers the lids and what they get for it and mm. but they literally do not know what they get for the money they spend on healthcare. they spend into healthcare, people get some treatment but they don't know whether it's good or bad so to your point why do people not dig in one i think there's definitely a we'd rather not know especially yeah. in perhaps social medicine systems where politically it would be unpalatable unpalatable in other organizations and other setups it's just such a big problem um and then there's vested interests in keeping mm. things opaque i think but maybe we'll come back to that uh peter um aside from the kind of social uh, uh, aside from the sort of social dynamics of which prevent people from criticizing the nhs and th and 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 the, this, the religion that you that you described are there are there sort of technical barriers or sort of on a on a, a tactical level uh, for collecting data because it, it occurs to me that i mean it's something that we see quite a lot when we're advising customers around sort of doing intelligence or doing analysis that um data is often sort of created f for one single use used and then disposed disposed of it's sort of data is to record data in a way that is useful beyond its initial purpose is co is costly. So, you know, you 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 can see it all the time with businesses sending emails and having conversations with each other. Lots of information flying around, which, in aggregate, later on, six months down the line, would be enormously useful for the business in doing some retrospective analysis. But there's a, an additional cost would be incurred in at the time structuring it or or applying structure um after the fact so you could then do some analysis with it is that does that ring true in, a, in healthcare as well it, it does um very much so the example i gave of asking a surgeon for example what are your uh, rates of infection post doing this process or if you're a pros prostate surgeon you operate on prostate cancer what's the rate of um incontinence in patients for, that you've treated over the last five years they won't know that information has been collected at some point the patient has come back to a clinic did you get an infection have you got incontinence that will be recorded probably in paper um, but it's literally data that's floating out there that no one the the perceived cost of doing something about it is uh, or the real cost of doing something about it collecting that data in a standardized way across the nhs over time is always too expensive for now but the long term and maybe we'll get mm -hmm. on to it the long term costs of not doing that no doubt are greater but that you know as often as this case that falls to someone else in the future down the line and that's a yeah. that's a hidden cost um so i think you're right that that those systematic uh issues are are also prevalent and i i, I suspect i suspect perhaps as well there's like a, a bit of um 
a tendency to allow perfection to be the enemy of good in that everyone seeks a one big solution for everything in the NHS all at once rather than saying, well, let's just do, right, let's just, eh, patient records at bedside, let's just digitize all of those at the point of collection. Just one, that one thing would collect an enormous amount of data that otherwise languishes in paper file that nobody ever looks at ever again. Is that, would would you agree with that? Yeah, very much, very much. And um, <clears throat> the sort of big, big, data it's also in silos so some of it's paper then some of it that is electronic is in silos and no one thought even though it's a national single healthcare system to put to put in place systems that actually necessarily speak to each other it's changing but very very slowly um when uh, people have tried to collect the data that's out there there's um a chap called samuel gray who's been working at this for many years in the nhs now now retired and still working at it and he his work led to something called the atlas of variation which looked at not so much the variation in outcomes, because again, they're not collected, but the variation in um, practice. So the fact that, for example, with diabetes care, huge variation in the number, in the way that different centers, different areas, different practices actually deliver the core, the 10 core things you're meant to do for every patient with diabetes. So you're, you're right, lots of silos of data, some technical barriers, political barriers, perhaps, social barriers, financial barriers and also witness uh, the current climate there's always a there's always something new and urgent and important in the nhs mm-hmm. which unfortunately mm-hmm. stops uh capitalization capitalizing rather on this superb data that would help inform not just changes here but overseas but as i say um these are international problems um so uh, mm-hmm. not just confined to the nhs uh nick yeah i i suppose i mean obviously i come from a i'm a my background is um as an economist uh working in government um and so i mean my i, I tend to think about information as as really a tool for you know allocating resources effectively and of course um you know, in a market, uh, you, information has a really direct impact in that uh, information will affect price. So you, you only need a few people to be informed. Um, so, you know, if I want to go and get a good bottle of wine, I can rely on the fact that, you know, and I don't know anything about wine, but I can rely on the fact that other people do know about wine to use price as a proxy for quality. And of course, as the price of certain kinds of wines go up, there's more of an incentive to produce those kinds of wines. And you don't really need to do anything uh, to translate that information into into a better allocation of resources, you know, people buying better things and producing better things. Um, obviously, it's different in in a market like uh, you know in the UK for healthcare by and large, which is you know government controlled. Um, uh, even if I have information about what works, you know, there's not necessarily an incentive for me to operationalize that. If I'm a provider, um, if I'm a consumer, I've got no real mechanism for um you know for sort of acting on it i mean if i know one doctor's better than another i can't somehow end up in a situation where they get paid more you know because i go to them in a way i can just make their life worse because they'll be more overworked and so uh you know whereas i know now i i don't understand really i've got to be honest i've I've looked at it and i still don't really understand how the u.s healthcare system works if it does uh it seems like a huge mess of different organizations all kind of um uh, you know, insurers and, uh, you know, and firms providing uh, healthcare insurance for their customers and lots and lots of sort of principal agent problems. And But I just, is it different? I mean, is there more of an understanding in the US about the importance of information? Um, what role, I mean, is there a big difference in the way that information plays a role in, in, in healthcare provision here versus in the US? 
the short answer is no, um, unfortunately. And I'll give you maybe by way of example. <clears throat> in my last role, I was approached by the people who basically were in charge of allocate spending, buying, buying, and then delivering all the healthcare for the state of I won't say which state it was, West Well, the state of Connecticut. The state of Connecticut have a system, a statewide system for state employees and retirees. So um that's basically, I think it's it's almost, their budget is something like a third of the whole of England anyway. I mean, these states, as you know, are so huge. So this single, uh, essentially a statewide insurance system bought and paid for all the care for their employees and their retirees, massive. They came to me to say, well, we want to basically make it a value-based. We want to get better care. We want to understand what we're getting for our money. And then we want to be able to allocate in terms of where we get the best outcomes for the people being treated. We're going to start with just hip and knee replacements. You think relatively simple. And I said, well, what's it like now? How much do you pay now for these processes? And of course, it's a big, big market. Lots of people can provide. And they said, we have about 10, 10 or 12 different organizations that will deliver um, these, these replacements. We pay between $18,000 and $84,000 for the same procedure. I went, pardon i thought i'd misheard that's you know their accent or my english ears they said no we pay between 18 and eighty four thousand. this was for knee replacements i said oh, oh great and what do you get for the, that difference in that's a huge difference in in cost and they went and there was this awful silence and i felt like i'd said something obscene and you know they all looked at each other and they said we don't know that's the problem they, the figure comes back to us from the insurance company. Ultimately, with all the add-ons, the hospital has this funny bill with all markups. There's opacity at every level. Um, and they literally, and that that mirrors, in, in, in as an example of the whole of the healthcare system in the States, vast amount of insurers pay the bills. They don't care, particularly, unless they're a mutual, they've not got much interest in driving the cost down. In fact, maybe sometimes perverse interests. Hospitals, of course, and anyone doing procedures, get paid the more they do the more they get paid so i've got a friend who's a radiologist the more she does the more she gets paid so a whole load of perverse in incentives opacity and as you say nick unlike most markets where there's a very clear link and the per person buying ultimately has some indicator of quality even if it's just by saying well everyone else is buying this wine and their thought must be good there is no link between the ultimate payer i.e. The, the member of the public and any form of quality metric so when we get to what's the importance of healthcare outcomes back to your first question it's important for the individual if you're having your knee replaced your dad's having his heart bypass operation there's huge variation in the outcomes but then when you take that up to a country level and the states are probably the most uh, extreme example without clarity on outcomes for everybody in the loop the provider the payer the patient the insurer you get in a situation where the money flows independently of the quality and then you get perverse market forces driving costs up too often. Okay, so we're coming towards the end, um, but we've still got time for one or two more questions. Well, I Neil. don't think we haven't uh, so far really gone topical. We've got to go topical. Um, <laughs> so let's go topical. I, but well, I, I just I do, have, but I, I just have a perhaps an even more general question, which is, mm. you know, the the uh, <clears throat> I mean, again, thinking about health, health as a market, mm. um, you know the interesting thing about about healthcare. I think it fails almost every check of how you would expect to have, where you would expect to have sort of a well functioning, perfectly competitive market. In that, you know, there's a lot of externalities, like 
you know, people's transmission of disease, for example, that's an externality. Um, there are natural monopolies because actually providing kind of an integrated, I mean, health, people's healthcare needs are so varied that, you know, actually having having a large organization providing them is probably more efficient. Yep. Um, you have non-homogeneity. So Neil's knee, knee replacement is going to be a different product to my knee replacement that's good because we've got different knees. Um, there is, uh, you know, you're not even, so you're not even sure what you're getting when you're paying for something. Um, and there are, you know, lots of legal in, legal entry barriers about, you know, you can't just, I can't just, can't just become a doctor now, even if I would be amazing at it, I can't just decide to do that. And, and so, you know, there's all kinds of uh, one of those issues is about information I, now. But if it's the question, if the issue, one of the key failures of, of sort of the health market, as it were, is to do with people's inability to use that information. I'm wondering, is there a limit to how useful it can be to give individuals? Who is it who needs the information? Do we want do we want can we rely on people to make the right decisions? I mean, people make terrible health decisions. How do we know they're not just going to go to the hospital, which has the snazziest logo rather than one which actually ends up providing them the best service? Is that a legitimate concern or, you know, actually, do we need to be making, is it someone else who needs this information? And how do we, how do we, what's the best way of using it? Yeah, I think, so Nick, I think um, your point about, was there a risk they'll just go to the place with the snazziest logos? That's what happens now. That's what happens now. I mean, I don't know if you heard or people listening heard the BBC report into Great Ormond Street at the weekend. So Great Ormond Street couldn't have a better name. Peter Pan, the whole image, best hospital for children. If Anybody who listened to that report um, would understand and know very clearly that going with the logo and the reputation is not the best way to do things. And I have friends who've worked in Great Ormond Street and have been telling me this for years that there are major issues that need sorting out, as with many hospitals. In America, people go to the place with the biggest logo, the name, the brand. That's because they've got nothing else to go on. So I used to, you know, I'd get in a cab in the States and the taxi driver said, what do you do? And they said, oh, can you tell me? He said, I've got to have my back done. Which is the best place to go to? Or they'd say, how do I know? I went to the place and it's the, you know, I don't know, the mass gen. It's meant to be the best, but how do they make it $80,000? So without any outcomes let's go back to the theme of outcomes data what do people judge on um, and at the moment we're in a desert i think of course there's risks with data that's not uh helpful for people but this is there's a uh, what's the word i'm looking for there's a sh shift in society to transparency and data and trusting people it wasn't so long ago that people were told they couldn't choose their bank they wouldn't understand interest rates they couldn't look after their own portfolios uh, they couldn't choose this they couldn't choose that they couldn't book their own holiday we needed intermediates healthcare now sits in splendid isolation where we're told don't worry about the outcomes we'll look after the data trust us and that's whether you trust the insurance company you trust the nhs trusting mm. trusting people uh, i'm not sure people are going to carry on trusting big governments <laughs> Um, with with that so I, I mean, it's a, a much longer answer to that question and a, a much broader topic discussion to have but right now people make decisions based on putting their finger in the air asking the person they meet at the golf club or the brand logo of the hospital um i want to in a little while i want to come on return sort of um you know the, the current situation but before we do uh peter is there something you'd like to ask so so in the uk we have uh, patient choice i think it's called which allows um uh, it allows you to elect where you want to have your treatment. So if you're referred for a, a back operation, then you, you can look up on the NHS website 
what surgeries where you can get your surgery and then elect to, to to go for that that's quite relatively recent so is that is that neil is that is that going in the right direction or is that a bit of a sticking plaster on on the to to, to use a terrible pun <laughs> uh, uh, no i i think it's absolutely the direction and it's to nick's point you don't need everyone to choose to change the market so and that works even in the nhs so hospitals work on such thin margins that if there was good data and people could see that actually if i had my hip replaced at cambridge rather than oxford i've got a 30 percent less chance of getting an infection i'm making those figures up but there is huge variation between different centers if even five or ten percent of patients said actually i'm going to take i'm going to drive 50 miles further to get my knee done that would uh, literally create financial challenges for the hospital that lost that proportion of their work. Now, some people think that's a bad thing, but I think being challenged when you're not delivering good care, whether you're infecting too many patients and driving change is a good thing. So choice is a good thing. But back to Nick's point, choice without information isn't choice, is it? Mm. It's a name and a logo on a website. Mm. But yeah, unless, it's a guess. yeah, it's a guess. It's a, for, yeah. uh, uh, what we need is informed choice and outcomes. Ultimately, who who would choose if they could to go somewhere where they knew the treatment their child would get would be a worse outcome than somewhere else. Um, so mm. outcomes, you know, obviously I'm banging that the drum and there's other things that are important, but market forces, even in uh, a state system, are powerful if done in the right way. Um, so I've got a couple of informal questions I want to ask Neil, but before I do that, um, Nick, um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about um, what's happening right now. I think you've got something you want to say. Yeah, I, well, we on a, on another podcast we were talking about some of the some of the good things that might come out of uh, you know the horrible situation we're in from a healthcare provision data sort of perspective. What what has the COVID nineteen situation highlighted about what we're perhaps good at or not good at, and what do you think it might spur? What 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 would you like to see happen? as a result that would you know perhaps you know improve things in future um i'd like you know again these are sort of dreams a bit but hey we're in uncharted waters where everything's possible we've even got a conservative government nationalizing the railways and handing out money to everyone so clearly it's it's in never never land um wouldn't it be super if people actually understood a little bit more about risk and about reality so the fear uh, and scare and upset that's been caused by the way this whole thing has been covered i suspect is way out of proportion to the reality so if you look at uh normal flu normal flu kills it varies but in uh 2014 2015 flu killed 24,000 people in the uk so if i wrote a headline saying new influenza is going to kill 24,000 people across the uk everyone would be be scared but that that was the normal normally it's a bit lower than that 14,000 10,000 um, COVID-19 coronavirus my bet is we it won't kill 10,000 people in the UK this year probably much nearer 5,000 which isn't actually a lot more than the normal flu kills um sorry so, to interrupt, yeah, Neil. Sorry to interrupt, but is that because of um but the, is were it not for the precautions that people are taking now is it would it have the potential to kill more though than a usual flu well we really don't know and i'm going to bring that that's what i was going to say we come back to data no no come back to data and outcomes no one knows the there's a much much cleverer people than me have have written many pieces saying look all the predictions are just that they're predictions based on tiny amounts of data a few hundred patients in um in china initially initially then a few thousand the um uh, the cruise liner 
the cruise liner. It turns out that 80% of the people on, on the uh, cruise liner that was off Tokyo were infected. Mm. Tiny mm. proportion showed symptoms and an even smaller proportion actually suffered. So I think what we... What I hope it will lead to is people, and it won't, but what I hope it will lead to is people thinking, can we have proper data? Let's not make knee-jerk decisions. Being isolated and lonely for the elderly has the same impact on their health, health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of inflammatory markers, stress markers, and impact on health. So we've now condemned tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of elderly people to three months of smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and that mm. will have impacts on healthcare. So I think it's just about... And I feel, I feel actually, I never thought I'd say this. I feel sorry for the politicians. They're forced into a corner where you have to act. And it's very interesting. Sweden has not mm. closed their schools or their cafes. And we're always told Sweden's one of the best healthcare systems, the best data analysts, the best public health. So I think there's going to be lots of natural experiments that we're going to be able to look back on and say, what was the data showing us? And then also, mm. what what are the outcomes? So I'm not sure that answered your question. I'm very positive about this, as you can tell. But then I'm not coughing like two of you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. The sound effects there. I like the yeah. COVID sound. <laughs> um, that was a nice reassuring note to listen on. I can tell you have a background in medicine. That's good. Um, so look, before we finish off, there's just a couple of things I want to ask. Um, uh, more related to you, Neil. And um, so I, the first thing is, I used to be a teacher. And, and one of the worst things about being a teacher is if another teacher comes into your class as a student um teaching another teacher is a nightmare um because they kind of think they know it all even if it's a completely different subject and they think they know your tricks etc etc um so here's my question to you what do you like as a patient um and i'm just wondering when you go and see your gp um what kind of what kind of patient do you think your gp thinks you are uh that's a good question so I tend to keep my head down and unless I think it's really necessary. So I, my, my current GP hasn't seen me because I'm fortunately enough to be either well or... You not, look super healthy. Not, so, well, yeah. <laughs> thank you. Um, so, but I did, when I do go with perhaps with a family member, I'll try and keep quiet because as you say, there's nothing worse than thinking you're being uh, assessed. Um, having said that, the time I tend to say it is at the end of the consultation saying, well, actually I did, I was a doctor for some time and just like to say, thank you. That was so good. You explained it so clearly because I know how much feedback is and positive reinforcement of feedback is. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think the, the moral, most doctors try and keep away from doctors because they know that there's the variance really. <laughs> can I, can I see if I can get Neil's support for a scheme <laughs> every time, every time I see not my GP, my GP's great, but every time I go into, as a sort of relative stranger, to a hospital, for whatever reason, I all I want to know is, okay, you know, how roughly how long is this going to take, right? Give me some probability distribution or mean or something, you know. And it's always like, oh, we just don't know. But you must have some idea. Is it going to be an hour or is it going to be five days? And and then, you know, what's the probability that it's this thing rather than another thing? So you're, you've got to do a blood test because you're worried that there's some chance it might be something really bad. Well, a priori, what's the frequency of that thing in the general population? Now, I know that 99% of people aren't as au fait with using probabilities as I am. And that is completely right that doctors use a different way of presenting information to, to most people. I would love to be able to sit some sort of exam 
to prove that I'm capable of correctly interpreting uh, medical information, which would give me a card, informed consumer card I'm, that I could I'm not take sure you to my. Pass it, Nick, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, but someone could. It'd just be a card that would say I'm an informed consumer, and you can give me the facts because I'm do, not going to you know panic. What, what would happen, Nick? Though they that would be like holding a, a, a sort of cross up in front of a vampire, and the doctors would run <laughs> backwards screaming <laughs> from you because what it would actually reveal is that often, and again, this is the nature of it. The way it's shot, they don't have the facts. They have a vague idea, and I think, and again, you know, you mentioned Trishan at the top, our mutual friend. He'd probably have much better facts on this. But when uh, they've tried to get the knowledge out of doctors about how they make diagnoses and how they treat and how they advise, you can't get them because they're not based on doctors think they're based on, but it's more just gut feel and intuition. Mm. And that's why, in so many cases, and this sounds, oh God, I'm terrible as a doctor bashing doctors that AI is better at doing so many things than now the the new work. Uh, 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 Google are doing around radiology interpretation of x-rays show that actually machines are better at diagnosing uh, breast disease from breast scans than doctors because mm. these things should be done with systems and measures and stats and often they're done with medicines and art it's an intuition so one of the reasons they don't tell you isn't that, in fact it's not that they don't think you'll understand uh, I think they uh, the worry is they don't have those figures themselves to, to tell you anyway Hmm. Um, just before we finish off, a question I always ask um, to our guests. Um, so just a brief one. Uh, Neil, if you weren't doing what you do do, um, working in health data and a background as a doctor, etc., what would you do? What would be your career if you weren't doing this? Um, I'm sort of a bit jealous of that guy who this who last week said he was going to be the nation's PE teacher and just plops a camera in front oh, of Joe him. Wicks. Joe Wicks. I've never seen him. I mean, that's quite a good gig, isn't it? You pop a camera up and you jump around and your your brand value goes to 14 million. So that, <laughs> that, would, that would be great. Um, uh, what would I do? Maybe, you know what? Maybe I'd go back to being a clinician, but I wouldn't work in a big hospital. I'd probably work on a small remote island somewhere and try and really work out whether I was making a difference and measure measure outcomes. Because clinical yeah. medicine is great. And you can get, um, as we all know, you can get caught up in in data and outcomes and science. So the one-to-one, um, I'm, I'm the person, probably the short answer question, I'm the person who on the plane when they say, is there a doctor? I'm the one who jumps up and says, yes. Every other doctor hides behind their newspaper and goes, oh my God. But um, <laughs> I actually miss that one-to-one interaction with patients. And about my only chance to do it is when some poor, typically a fat man's got his collar done up too tight and has drunk too much gin. And it's just a matter of giving a glass of water and opening his shirt collar and you're the hero and get pushed up into first class well, but have you ever had to intubate someone with a with a biro <laughs> no no I, I haven't but i do know i do know the professor who who uh, who claimed to to do that that was the coat hanger the oxygen tubing and the whiskey for the pneum, pneumothorax so uh, it's a that's a great story um and actually i'm the opposite of all those other doctors i have no medical qualifications but i always jump up and say yes because <laughs> i just know and even if it works out badly it will i'll still be the hero i you know did what i could yeah um okay all right um <coughs> you've got to leave those coughs in fraser on the on i the know idea. i do i don't That's yeah, such yeah. timely authenticity it is, isn't it? Okay, um, so we're going to wrap up there. Thank you, as always, for listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrew. We've been here with Peter Coughlin and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. But a special thank you uh, to Neil Bacon for being with us. So thank you very much, Neil. Pleasure. Thank you. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.